to be or not to be? That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them, to die, to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream, aye, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin? Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose bourne no traveller returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of? Thus conscience doth make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sickly all with the pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pith and moment with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Well, welcome. I wanted you to hear the famous Hamlet soliloquy from yours truly this morning. Um, The most famous uh, Shakespeare soliloquy, the most famous Shakespeare quote, of all time, and this this uh, session this morning, the thirty third part of this series through one Corinthians, entitled "To Progress or Not to Progress." That is the question, and you'll see straight away why I'm uh, relating what I'm sharing this morning with this very famous Shakespeare soliloquy. I want to relate, it's Acts 3, Acts 3, scene 1, I remember the days back in school studying this, I'm sure many of you listening have also studied it, maybe even memorised the soliloquy, we had to, I think we had to memorise it at one point, it, it, it was a long time ago. Act 3, scene 1, from that famous play, and I'm going to do something about that, um, just as I've been preparing this over the last few few days I've um, felt I'm going to do something else on this and relate it to 2 Corinthians 5 but for today a soliloquy is a type of monologue in a play that is intended to advance the audience's understanding of a character including his inner thoughts and feelings his motivations and sometimes what he plans to do next I'll come to that at the very end of the session today Um, so Shakespeare the soliloquies are essentially to reveal a character's thoughts and inner monologue. So no other characters are on the stage and Hamlet speaking alone on the stage, you know, would, I don't remember you could think of Cumberbatch or whoever's famously done Hamlet in recent times, you know, physically facing an audience but emotionally trapped in their own minds and yet still sharing their motivations and desires that they might not have done they might not have shared with other characters in the play so that's the that's the purpose of a soliloquy and i want i want to develop that thought as i say in some content to come after today's sermon but it does this this question to be or not to be that is the question well actually our question is to progress or not to pro- progress and this is the question that i've had in my mind um for years now and as i've prepared for this session today i felt it has been and is incredibly significant um what i want to share today has been something that's been on my heart for years and this is where it's just been a natural um approach to this as we've gone through these chapters and we've come to a critical point in 1 corinthians 11 where paul deals with um some very important issues to 
to do with worship. Essentially, everything is to do with worship, isn't it? And the glory of God, we, we know that from the end of the last chapter. Um, but this particular part of 1 Corinthians is well known for the issue of head coverings and why is it the the egalitarians and egalitarianism will be something that I'll mention in passing. If you don't know what egalitarianism is or complementarianism, it's worth just Googling that, maybe just to pause and do that. But the, the egalitarian Christians of the world that basically don't really respect any differences between men and women um, would argue that, that 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11 are two passages that demonstrate the hypocrisy of the church where essentially we we want to go along with what Paul teaches in some in some ways i.e. 1 Timothy 2 in terms of elders only being male and that women can't teach men and so forth but then when it comes to 1 Corinthians 11 and you know, if we if we're going to follow Paul and what in Timothy two, why aren't we following Paul in one Corinthians eleven? Why aren't, why aren't the ladies all wearing head coverings in church, etc.? So I want to deal with that today, head on, and at the same time deal with our text faithfully because it's not just about that. In this, you know, in this section, I want to go through today um, verses two to sixteen of chapter eleven, and. Um, deal with that major, major issue. And I want to, I do want to give most time to that today. So please forgive me as I move through some of the other bits, um, perhaps more sparsely and certainly more quickly. Um, but suffice to say, our main question for today, to progress or not to progress, that is the question. Uh, says says uh, Hamlet, stroke Nick Franks. This is, this is what I want to frame um why do we progress with some things and not with others? Okay, so theologically to progress, meaning why don't we have head coverings today and why do we still maintain that what Paul said in other parts of Scripture is still for today? Is this, is this not just the hypocrisy that the world hates, the idolatry that perpetuates our utter irrelevance in society? Is this all just the paving of the way? of the human abhorrences that we're seeing now in terms of the state-sponsored abuse of our children. Um, what do I mean by that? Maybe if you're joining for the podcast for the first time, you might think, well, gosh, the abhorrences of state-sponsored abuse of our children. Well, let me just read you quickly uh, an email from the Coalition for Marriage. This is just a week or two back, so this is very, very recent, regarding the Scottish government's guidance for schools. I'm just going to read you two paragraphs. Starting at primary school, the guidance says teachers should use resources which, quote, challenge gender stereotypes and include transgender people. Trans role models should be used to have a, quote, unquote, normalising effect. As for those kids who are confused about their gender, quote, it is best to not share information with parents or carers without considering and respecting the young person's views and rights. So that's exactly what I mean when I'm talking about state-sponsored child abuse. We're living in a world, we're living in a city, we're 15 minutes away from Parliament here in Edinburgh and Mary and I will be protesting prayerfully very soon outside because whether to do with abortion or whether to do with this abhorrent transgender ideology, uh, who, if we don't say something, if you don't say something, then who's going to? The answer is very simple. Simple. It's nobody. So we are compelled. We are compelled to say something about this. And I'd encourage you to track with the C4M uh, and particularly the Christian Institute who are dealing with some of these issues very well and make, often making resources available. Um, so why do we progress with some things and not others? And isn't this the root of the dysfunction, the chaos that we're seeing both in the church and in the world at large, secular. And I want to come to the conclusion today, and I want to argue, um, I want to share basically what I see with regard to the way that the I see the church relating with the state and then what the effect of that is on the state. Uh, I want to just make a, um, an argument about that in, in a few moments. Today's text, to try and answer this question, when do we progress and when don't we? Um, as I come to this now to read chapters 11 to 14, no, is really dealing with three issues relating to public worship. 
and specifically order in p- public worship. And in that sense, it's a bit of a prelude to chapter 14. As we, most of us all know, coming to that chapter, we're coming to, and expecting to be thinking and learning about the gifts of the Spirit and how they are supposed to work within the corporate worship, the order of worship, that kind of thing. But it's also dealing with cliques at the Lord's Supper. We're going to come to that next week. And thirdly, elitist attitudes regarding the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So those three issues, order in public worship, the Lord's Supper, and then these attitudes to do with the gifts are the three issues that um, that we'll be dealing with up into chapter 14. And of course, then chapter 15 is the, is the chapter where Paul deals with the resurrection, the glorious hope, the blessed hope as well. Um, Paul resolved to know nothing while he was in Corinth except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And there's there is an emphasis on the death. And I think I won't I'll I won't say anything about that now because I'll get distracted, but suffice to say our gospel sharing is uh rooted in history, the in the undisputable reality that Jesus was on the planet and that he died. No one with half a brain will dispute that. Um but anyway, he does of course um preach beautifully and there's so much to say coming into chapter 15 but anyway today's text is verses 2 3 to 16 let me read them and then um, move through these thoughts now i commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as i delivered them to you but i want you to understand that the head of every man is christ the head of a wife is her husband and the head of christ is god every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man, for man was not made from woman and woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper to pray? What, is it proper for a wife to pray to God and her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, so verse verse 2, um, so slightly odd dealing with verse 2 is the first verse today, but obviously last, do you remember last week, verse 1 of this chapter is imitate me as I'm imitating Christ was Paul's and, uh, command. And as as we go into this now, it's, it's very, keep that in mind, we're called to imitate and those 12 qualities that I went through last time, again, they weren't exhaustive or comprehensive fully, they were scratching the, the surface. But verse 2 here, now I commend you because of blah, blah, blah. Now, it's interesting in this chapter because, of course, if we're reading the whole chapter and then studying it in parts, we'll know that he's commending them here. But then partway through, as he begins next week's session, he doesn't do that, does he? As a big but halfway through uh, in verse 17. Um, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So there's this co- commendation and then uh, essentially a corrective rebuke. Um, it's surprising, isn't it? You come having kind of waded through everything we've come through in this book and learnt more about the church there, the way of thinking there, and so on. Um, It's a pleasant surprise to have Paul commending them because, and specifically because they remembered him in everything and maintained the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So I want to spend less time on this because I want to get to the main crux of to progress or not to progress. That is the question. And But this here is... um, Uh, If you think about verse 2 here, that is the first of our verses today, compared with verse 23. In verse 23 of this same chapter, look what he says there. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and so forth. Now, this is the the issue here of oral tradition. If you think of, remember that Corinth wasn't a particularly literary um, 
society or culture, there wouldn't have been, um, in terms of education and, and the ability of, uh, you know, numeracy or literacy and so forth. So the, the whole thing of oral, oral tradition and truths, traditions, practices, you know, doctrine, dogma, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, being passed down was reliant on oral tradition. And that's what Paul is saying here. Um, if you think of um, hearing the process of hearing and passing something on um, and the reliability of that was essential given that there was less literary and numeracy um, skill. So Prior says, uh, think of it as a body of tradition. So 1 Timothy 4, 6, if you remember, if you put these things before the brothers, this is uh, worth just making a note of 1 Timothy 4, 6 where Paul writes to Timothy saying, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the, of the good do- doctrine that you have followed. So if you put these things before the brothers, so on, it's the same thing as he's saying in, in verse 2 here and then verse 23. Um, think about maybe Gideon in the wine press. Do you remember what Gideon had said in Judges 6.13? And Gideon said to God, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us, i.e. the Midianites, every every season? Plaguing the Israelites. And then Gideon says, and where are all, the, all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? So there's this oral tradition where things are passed on genera- generationally, um, by way of orthodox truth and so on. And that's what Paul is um, he's commending them for at the beginning of this chapter. Evidently, there was that in practice. And it seems a bit confusing in some ways because we know that there are great immaturities in this church, but also great strengths. It's confusing as well because we know in this chapter, that, as I've said earlier, there was a commendation and then suddenly there's a rebuke. And the rebuke seems and is incredibly serious. And I think it's... Um, if not the, one of the most important things that the church needs to be wrestling with and repenting about today. So oral tradition was very important. The Corinthians were being faithful in that sense, remembering Paul. Um, just think as a little example about that oral tradition, if some of you might have seen the the terror, um, a dramatization of the two ships, the two Royal Navy, British Royal Navy ships that were mysteriously lost and then subsequently found, of course. But there was a drama on I play called the terror and the relationship between the the British Navy and Inuit people and how oral tradition was was crucial um, within those ships being found if you if you check out another another documentary on that but anyway by the way the the, the drama on BBC is quite um, harrowing so just just a little word of warning about maybe watching that or not um, but the Inuit people and the way that that oral tradition was working there was 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 crucial for those ships being found at the bottom of the sea. So it's just to serve to make the point that oral tradition for Paul and he was commending them. Verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of, of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. So this is Paul cutting to the chase, okay? He comes straight in in verse 3. Um, again, the, ver- the first word, but. So... <laughs> A but doesn't seem to be very far away, does it, constantly with these guys in this church at this time and indeed for us. But he cuts the chase. Now, this is important for what I'm going to argue and kind of try and explain to you in a moment in terms of this, um, the egalitarian position where men and women basically don't have any real differences. Hence, women can lead churches, women can preach, women can lead men, women can have authority over men, etc., etc., because we're egalitarian to think everything's equal and so on. This is Paul coming straight in and he's coming in using, um, he, he's talking about headship. Okay, now headship is one of those red rags to a bull for many people, but headship is a thing. Headship is a thing. When Mary and I got married, um, we used the word submit in our vows. You know, Mary submitted to me as her, um, as her husband. And look at what Paul says here. Okay, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. Notice that Paul talks about every man and then he just he, he shifts the category, doesn't he? He shifts it to being a wife rather than a woman. 
So the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is a husband. And there's a little picture there of Ephesians 5. I may touch on that shortly. You know, that a, a husband, a Christian man, a husband is called to love his wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. That's the calling of a Christian man, a Christian husband. Um, I'm going to say something about submission in a, mo- in a moment because it is one of the most attacked theological realities of our day. But look at this, okay? So that so commentators and scholars and so on will talk about the divine order here. Now, I get that there, there is a divine order. Um that the head of a man, every man is Jesus, the head of a wife is her husband, and that the head of Jesus is God. Okay? Now, that there's a divine order there. Um from Genesis 2, let me just flick to that for you. Genesis 2 Verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and so on and forth. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he, he slept, one of his, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Um, Paul is addressing this chaos in worship by this divine order where God sets out an order for the way things should be. Now, it's worth me, evidently worth me repeating that. God says this is good this is order and that this is <laughs> this is god's word this is not something that's negotiable even though we're about to see that much of the church today considers it ne- negotiable so i said that the the commentators here um talk about this being the divine order of things and it is but I, I one of the things that came to mind as I was reading this just in the last week or so was this um, passage in 1 Samuel 25 and I'm not going to go into it now but again for your notes you might take some time to look at it this seems like an odd odd um, moment to have come to mind and I still think there's there's much more in this than I'm currently aware of but again I'm trying to cut to the to the main focus of today is that it struck me that from 1 Samuel 25, 29, and this was the incident with David, Nabal, and his wife Abigail. And um, if you remember, David looked for favor with Nabal, and he wasn't given it. Nabal responded very poorly. He was a fool. His, his name literally meant fool. Um, and if it hadn't been for Abigail, who recognized the seriousness of the folly of her husband if it hadn't been for her trip and gifts to david david would have potentially been then guilty of blood guiltiness and so forth and he would have basically smashed smashed nabal to to smithereens but um it's the verse in chapter 25 of 1 samuel where this account is 1 samuel 25 29 and listen to this uh, verse. This is Abigail speaking to David, who who had gone to him to try and placate David's rage. She says to him, "If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my lord shall be bound in the bundle of the sorry. The life of my lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God." I'll say it again shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. Now, that's the phrase that came to my mind immediately when I read this bit in verse 3 here to do with Paul's explanation about the headship of um, every man, a wife, and then Jesus. Um, And this is what I want to say about submission in relation to that, is that what a beautiful phrase that is. I mean, there is much more that could be said, and I would encourage you to study that little passage and the significance of it. But when Abigail said that, if the life of my Lord, if anyone seeks you, David, if anyone seeks to kill you, the life of of David was bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. Now, I see women, I see the wife, the Christian wife, the woman 
in the center of this bundle and a little in a little bit of a similar way that David was expressed there as being in the bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God this thing of submission evidently the Corinthians were being commended for maintaining traditions but they hadn't understood this this is why Paul says in verse 3 but I want you to understand so they had they had maintained some traditions but they hadn't understood this and this is this is at the the apex, and, and and I think that's massively important for us today in the church. How much, it, where there is faithfulness, where there are elements of fruitfulness and God honouring, glorifying uh, faithfulness, and yet how how much of how much um, when we, when we make keep the main things the main things, and this is a main thing. This issue of the dis- distinct features and callings and identities and roles of men and women is the bedrock of society and it's that very thing that Satan is attacking. But they, So these Corinthians hadn't understood it and I think many don't understand it today. Um, th- th- think about this divine bundle of creation, okay, as well as the divine order. There is a divine order here. I'm not arguing with that. Of course, there's an order, but there's also a divine, a sense of divine hiddenness being kept. And and this word submission, when it when it's you know our wedding, when when we had that and our vows, you know, there were people scowling at me and um, thinking I was some kind of dinosaur and was married just being, you know, oppressed or suppressed in some way because she was suddenly now marrying this Christian guy. And, like, this is the truth about submission, okay? Um, Ephesians 5 makes it very clear that the, the calling of a husband is very different from the calling of a wife. The wife is is called to submit to and love her husband, but that the husband is called to love and cherish and serve and die for his wife as Christ loved the church. Now, if you compare those two realities, what's the higher calling? What's the what's the tougher calling, so to speak? In other words, when submission and this whole thing of authority and headship is talked about as being an oppressive, archaic um, regressive type reality from a bygone era where religion was just, you know, the dark ages and so on. It's it's stripping the most beautiful element of our relationship with God and also with each other as husband and wife. It's stripping, it's stripping marriage of that because submission is is like in a in a healthy Christian marriage, for a wife to submit to her husband, it should be like you and I submitting to Jesus. It's a picture of it's a picture of that, isn't it? As John Piper says that, that that marriage here is just a parable of permanence. It's a it's a copy of the original. This is why it's so significant that marriage and gender identity and roles of men and women today are under attack. That's why it's so significant. This that these are the very fundamental foundational elements of what it means to be human. And so I wanted to say that in passing it again. I could say much more on that. Um, is that there's a thinking of this divine bundle and the when you think of every man and being the head of every man is Jesus, that the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Jesus is God. Think of that not just as a divine order, but as a bundle, a divine bundle within which at the very center in this, in this secure, um, servant, uh, protected, kept, um, cherished, provided for, protected from, etc. That that if you think of it as an embryonic type of womb like sheltered protective place, that's where the woman is, in the center. It's a little bit like thinking about us being kept, you know, John 15, abiding in Christ or Romans 8. You know, if God is for you, who can be against you? This submission is not an ugly thing or a a suspicious thing. It's a beautiful, stunning, blessed gift. And I'm I'm resisting talking about it at more length because it is a beautiful thing. It's a very misunderstood thing, but I haven't got time. So um, um, the ba- bound in the bundle of the living. I love that. 1 Samuel 25, 29. Check it out. Nabal, Nabal was a fool. Why, why did Abigail marry him? And why did Nabal's parents call him fool? 
Well, I, I might offer a, an interpretation or a suggestion to answer that in terms of the generational uh, handing on of things or the lack thereof. I might try and keep my mind in order to do that at the end. But verses 4 to 10, okay, so then Paul comes into this. This is the difficult bit to explain briefly, and I'm going to try my best. Verses 4 to 10 summarize what was going on in Corinth and where the disorder and the chaos were, okay? And you've basically got women and men, and you've got the... Um, You've got women who weren't wearing head coverings, okay? And um, this this is this is coming to the question of to progress or not to progress. And this is why I've said uh, for for a year for a number of years now I've been bothered by this question that that doesn't seem to be much, if any, conversation about or teaching about. Is that why do we progress? In other words, why do we go along with Paul's teaching verbatim? And then seem to not on others. What, what, where's the rationale for that? And is there a rationale for that? And do both sides of the, you know, both camps have a rationale that's respectable and so forth, that kind of thing. Now, progressive Christianity is from the pit of hell. Okay, I'm just going to encourage you, and I'm not, I'm going to, I'm not going to say anything more about that. The liberalism of today, um, the desire for the Christian faith to be free from the Word of God in mood, methods, morals, or message. Liberalism is something that, the reality that should make us feel physically sick. So I'm going to give you two websites for you to check this out in your own time. pcnbritain.org.uk. That's papacharlienovemberbritain.org.uk. And then simply progressivechristianity.com. If you check out both of those websites, you'll see exactly what I mean by progressive Christianity. It is no Christianity at all. It is... It is heresy, it's apostasy, it's rife, it is Satan in disguise as an angel of light, as it was in Corinth. And this is why this section here is so, so important. Um, As I mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians 11, this exact little passage we're in now, will be held up by egalitarian Christians, okay? Um, Next to 1 Timothy 2 and say, guys, why do you agree with Paul in 1 Timothy 2, but you don't in 1 Corinthians 11? Because if you did, you would all still be wearing head coverings today. Okay, that's the argument. And I want to, if you, looking at the text, you can see that Paul is, Paul's underlying concern in 1 Corinthians 11 isn't head coverings. Okay, although that's what the subject seems to be at face value, there is, there is a greater agenda here in Paul. That's why, um, the egalitarians are able to point to this and say, guys, this is just obsolete. We don't need to be paying attention to this. It's inconsistent da, 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 because, and this is this is the reason, listen here, this is really important, okay? In both 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2, Paul uses creation. He uses, he uses Genesis 2 in effect to make his point. Now, that's why egalitarians are able to say, you're inconsistent with what you're doing with Paul. But there is a there is a point here to understand, and this is the critical point. It's taken quite a lot of time this week for me to get my head around this, but I've read some quality stuff on it, and I'm going to recommend that in a minute for you. Which is that the difference between these two passages, one Corinthians eleven and one Timothy two, is that the is whether or not Genesis two and creation is directly or indirectly referred to. In other words. Was Paul's agenda in 1 Corinthians 11 here really to do with head coverings? Was it really to do with a cultural issue that was transient and that was relevant and important as an as a outward external symbol of an internal reality as it was in Corinth, which obviously isn't today? Um, listen to what David Pryor says. He main, Paul maintains one factor undergirds Paul's arguments in this paragraph, our paragraph today in 1 Corinthians 11. One factor undergirds Paul's arguments. He starts from the doctrine of creation, not from the doctrine of redemption. This immediately undercuts the objections of those who claim that Paul was in, in a conflict with his own teaching. Um, if you look at verse 11 in our passage today, Paul, look what it says in... Look what it says in verse 11. Let's just go back to our text. Um, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. So there's this complementary interdependence where um, Paul is not uh, Paul is not uh, in confusion with his teaching and saying Galatians. Uh, Galatians um, is the passage here, that, Galatians 3. Um 
where the egalitarians, this is a classic egalitarian passage where people who want to dissolve roles and identities between men and women as regards, particularly with regard to the church, this is where they go to, okay, it's this verse here, Galatians 3.28, where Paul wrote, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, egalitarians take that to mean a man leading a church, a woman leading a church, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And they point to that as saying, well, that's, that, that was, this is evidence why Paul was confused with what he writes uh, in other parts of the New Testament, but not at all. That's why Prior says this immediately undercuts the objections of those who claim that Paul was in a conflict with his teaching because Paul wasn't saying uh, through, through that past, through that verse in um, Galatians 3 that there is suddenly now this obsolete suddenly the biology between man and women is obsolete. It doesn't matter. And that's not at all what Paul is teaching. Um, It should be obvious. And I'm going to make my main conclusion to do with with intuitive obviousness. It should be obvious to us that that's not what Paul was not. Of course, Paul was not saying that. If he was saying that, why would he have written Ephesians 5? Why would he have distinguished between... Um, husband and wives in that way there. Um, So the context here was that the Corinthian women were flouting their spiritual freedom in a way that disregarded God's wisdom in creation. The Corinthian women were flouting their spiritual freedom. Now, this is is where I've done most reading, and I want to give you this resource. I'll put this into the show notes. You can check it out and read it in full, just as I have. A chap called Benjamin Merkel, okay, has done some brilliant work, scholarly work on this issue. Um, and essentially his his work, his processes, you know, his his thoroughness of Bible biblical handling is refuting this egalitarian position on male female gender distinctions. And I'm going to read you a little bit of it here, but I want you to spend time reading it for yourself because this is a this is a premier primary issue in the church today. There are a few things if there are thieves, it's on the same level as marriage and gender, okay, this issue of male-female headship, uh, spiritual leadership and so on. And it and it's worthy and it's 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 very, very important that time's given to studying this carefully. Now, Merkel's done that for us, so he's done a lot of the legwork. This is what Benjamin Merkel says regarding this context in Corinthians. He says, from the evidence found in 1 Corinthians, it appears that the Corinthians were basing their Christianity on an erroneous view of spirituality, caused by an embrace of over-realized eschatology. Remembering that the qualities that we're supposed to be imitating is to have this eschatological awareness, but we should all know that part of the enemy's strategy within all of this is to cause this um, dysfunctional, imbalanced eschatology, which is no eschatology choice. It certainly wasn't Paul's eschatology and it wasn't Paul's converts' eschatology, although it was. this is with the error that was being addressed here. So... This doctrine of over-realized eschatology affirmed that the kingdom of God has come in all its fullness and therefore rejects the notion that the kingdom has not yet fully arrived. It places an over this is Merkel still, it places an it places an overemphasis on the spirit and spiritual gifts and neglects some of the more practical aspects of the Christian life, such as building others up. Okay? So that was that was that was Merkel. Um, and this was the context of these verses that we're dealing with here at the minute, verses 4 to 10, where Paul is going after this issue of, of head coverings. And yet it wasn't about the head coverings. It was about what the head coverings were pointing to. So over this, this, this phrase that Merkel uses, over-realized eschatology in the Corinthians, especially the women, okay? This, is, this was what was going on in the women, um, who considered the kingdom of God to be fully here and now. Does that sound familiar? Certain Bethel church lovers, you know, we're living under an open heaven and blah, blah, blah. Don't get me started on that. They believed that they considered the kingdom of God to be fully here now. This is why he's talking in terms of an over-realized eschatology and that there isn't a tension of the coming kingdom or linked to that, presumably, sanctification being progressive. There's a there's a positive use of the word progressive as opposed to what the liberals mean by that. Um, 
there's no tension of the coming kingdom, hence this libertine asceticism. Do you, do you remember I've talked about that in previous weeks where you've got the, lig- the, the libertines the libertines, sorry, and the rigorists and this, this work of over-realized eschatology, this, this false erroneous doctrine resulted in this asceticism, which is why, if you remember, Paul had to deal in chapter 7 with the likes of... Why, did, why was he having to talk to them about you know marriage and um, making sure that you have sexual intimacy in, as marriage? It's because one of the one of the fruits of this overrealized eschatology was that um, suddenly, we, well, we know there's not going to be any marriage in heaven. We know that that's not going to be in the age to come, in the eschaton to come. So therefore, why now? You know, we're fully in Christ. You know, we all things are lawful, and this is what the some of these um, Jezebel esque characters were doing female characters and it wasn't just women of course we know that but this is i'm focusing on the the passage today they were repeating back to paul his teaching where he talked about all things are lawful but not do you remember he had to then deal with that in the previous chapter in chapter 10 yes but not all things are helpful and so on but there was this this contorting skewing warping bending twisting going on and isn't that just the work of the enemy isn't that what he does when it comes to his options of leading people astray and causing chaos he does it in part via truth and that was the corinth was no exception so you had these libertines this is again thinking of today's liberal liberalism you know there, there are there's nothing new under the sun it's the same thing that was, that was going on in corinth in 52 ad or whatever it was compared with this absolute disgrace today um, all things are lawful, and so they didn't think marriage was important. They were, you know, abstaining from having sex, and Paul was having to counsel them on that issues with eating, or you know, all the different. It didn't matter what you ate, blah blah blah, blah because we're in Christ, and you know, da 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 da. Merkel goes on to say, because of their overrealized eschatology, some women wanted to minimize or erase the distinction between genders. This is deep, dark, demonic activity. And I'm trying to pause and slow down a bit here for it to sink in. I'm trying to help us all to understand not just what was going on in Corinth, but in a sense, more importantly, what's going on in our, ch- in our world today and in the church today. Mary and I have had personal experience of this very messed up personal experience. And I want to recommend a couple of things for you to read that will help you to understand some of the experiences we've had by way of exposure that have helped us not just to be able to understand this theoretically or theologically, but from a very practical, painful, costly personal experience. I want you to I want you to understand and read a couple of recommendations I'll make in a in a moment, okay? Um so the result of this overrealized eschatology, this wrong view of the kingdom, this wrong theology, um, was that some women wanted to minimize or erase the distinction between genders. And that is going on today, big time, big time. Merkel goes on to say, therefore, Paul's main concern isn't head coverings. This is 1 Corinthians 11. Isn't head coverings, since that was merely a transient cultural outworking of an unchanging truth. God created men and women differently and that this distinction is not eliminated when we become Christians. So two words here are important, okay? Transient and transcultural. And I've added these two words in to try and make a bit more sense of this sentence from Merkel for us. Think about the head coverings issue, okay? That's the, that's a transient issue. In other words, it's passing with culture, Okay. Paul's context, his his go-to issue, um, Genesis 2, of God made them man, male and female. A man leaves his husband, his mother and father and becomes one flesh with his wife, okay? That is a transcultural, or, or in other words, timeless truth. So you've got transient cultural um, practice or tradition, and you've got a transcultural or a timeless unchanging truth. God created men and women differently, and this distinction is not eliminated when we become Christians. Yet, many Christians don't believe what I've just said. Many Christians, these egalitarians who are in profound error, 
basing their life, practice, ecclesiology, etc., 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 on that verse in Galatians 3, who don't believe that there is any distinction when we become, because we become Christians, we're one in Christ, but there's no, when Paul says met, there's no male or female and so on. They throw out, this is the, this is the lure, okay? This is the, this is the worm on the end of a satanic hook that egalitarians swallow, hook, line, and sinker, so that the result is that they eliminate these distinctions, distinctives between men and women. Speaking of the Corinthians, again, Martin Luther said that the Corinthians had adopted the theology of the glory, but rejected the theology of the cross. The Corinthians had adopted the theology of the glory, but rejected the theology of the cross. Think of the women just chucking off their head coverings because, you know, they didn't they didn't value or treasure that eternal truth from Genesis two in terms of authority and submission to their husbands and what that means in terms of their own. Per- Ultimately, it's a relationship. It's a excuse me. It's a re- it's to do with their relationship with God Himself. When you have women um, conducting themselves like that, it's it is to do with the, a reflection of their husband, but it's ultimately to do with their relationship themselves personally with God. There's an issue not so much with submission to their husband, but to the Lord. Because, as I was saying earlier, submission is a beautiful thing. We can't come to Jesus unless we submit, can we? Men, women, children, that's what a disciple is. If you're not submitted to him, are you a disciple? Are you a Christian? I don't think you can be. The ESV notes here are very helpful, okay, on this issue of Galatians 3 verse, the egalitarians um, laminate and frame and put on their walls. ESV notes here address this by saying, old divisions and wrongful attitudes of superiority and inferiority are done away with, okay? So this relates to the verses here where Paul is talking about the interdependence between men and women. Um. Uh, he said that the, the ESV note says he, he does not take away the distinction between men and women, but says they are united. Indeed, that's, that's, that is the issue. We are united. Mary and I, as a husband and wife in Christ, we are one flesh. We're united. We're joined together in one body and then in, in the sense, in the context of the church as well. And this is the important verse to write down, okay, in Galatians 3. And in this bit, in 1 Corinthians 11 and in 1 Timothy 2, if you want, okay? That this verse teaches unity within diversity, but not sameness. The the verse teaches unity within diversity, but not sameness. Mary and I are completely one, unified, one flesh, etc. Equal etc. Diverse, very different. This is the this is the thing. We're equal in of course we are. There's no sense of superiority in this thing of submission in our wedding vows. But rather the 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 the, the sense of trembling in myself in thinking I'm a man being called to love Mary in a way that Jesus loves the church. If I had the choice between being a man or a woman, what would you rather be? Would you rather be called to love another like that or would you rather be called to be loved by somebody like that? That's what I would say to the egalitarians. That's what I would say to somebody who wants to skew an understanding of submission. This verse in Galatians teaches unity within diversity but not sameness. And again, that is... um, that is also the focus of some of of uh, some of our passage today in 1, 1 Corinthians 11. Um, I think it's actually verse 11, isn't it? Um, anyway, I, time is eluding me here, so I'm going to try my best to just wrap this up. Um, 
So the Corinthians had adopted that, adopted the theology of glory, but they rejected the theology of the cross. Again, how many denominations, charismatic, et cetera, et cetera, word of faith, choosing my words carefully, how much of that would sum that up? Um, so there's this interdependence of, of men and women. Mary submits to me as her husband as a reflection of the reality of her relationship with God and of my calling in Christ to serve her and cherish her, protect, provide for, etc. Um, and yet there is an interdependence. I mean, I, I could talk about that at length. We don't have time, but it's just obvious, isn't it? Isn't this obvious? Like there are things that men and women are just different about in, better at, you know, 1 Peter talks about this, you know, um, there's a reference to women being the weaker sex. Gosh, that's not that goes down like a lead balloon today, doesn't it? 1 Peter 3, 7, in the same way you married men should live considerately with your wives, with an intelligent recognition of the marriage relation, honouring the woman as physically the weaker, but realising that you are the joint heirs of the grace of life in order that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, if I don't treat Mary as I should, if I don't respond faithfully as her husband of Ephesians 5, my prayers are going to go nowhere very quickly. Now, there's a conversation to what that means. Does that mean you can't, whatever. But point being, there is this uh, sense in which uh, Christ, the, Christ, the honour of Christian women, and remembering what I was saying about that bound in the bundle of the living and the care of the Lord, you know, that sense of the, of, of the women being kept in safety and protected, you know, it's beautiful. Complete contrast to the Taliban. Islamic treatment of women. I remember once in Bradford where a patient came to me for an appointment. And I was sat opposite her. She was an Islamic lady, you know, in her Islamic attire. And I was doing an assessment with her and, you know, noticed as I was taking some information that it was her birthday. And I said, oh, happy birthday. It's like, why are, you, why are you here having your appointment for your birth on your birthday? And she said to me, and I'll never forget it, she just said, it's, it's because it's my birthday that I've specifically chosen to make this appointment because she was allowed out of her house on her birthday as a special treat, as a special dispensational uh, exception or whatever. Because most of the time she's not allowed out of the house. You know, she's, she ha she's, not, she, she's stripped of basic human freedoms um, that's not honouring of women. It's abuse. It's evil. Taliban, this Islamic plague, you know. So there's this con stark contrast between the Ephesian 5 honouring, it's 1 Peter 3, 7, honouring of women compared to the satanic counterfeit. I want to come quickly now to the conclusion because this is unknowably serious. This, this, this um, disregarding of the divine order, the divine bundle of protection of the way that men and women are supposed to be as set out in Eden and that is is not to be disregarded today and yet is in a pandemic way. Now, two examples I want to give very quickly in passing. I've said earlier that Mary and I have had personal experience of this and uh, I've written an article quite recently actually about, about this very specific issue. It's called The Death and Dearth of Spiritual Leadership. The death and dearth of spiritual leadership. Just make a note of it and look for it on firebrandnotes.com. And really, for that example, that's all I need to say um, because it gives, in very sobering terms, what I consider to be the effect and the net result when we do this. When we say, We don't agree with you, God. We don't agree with what your word says. We want to skew the word for that Paul means something else in Galatians 3 and we're going to base everything else on that. These are the consequences and I've given my best shot there at explaining as graciously as I can what I consider to be the result of the church doing that. The death and dearth of spiritual leadership. Please read that and encourage you to share it with folk. Um, who are understanding the significance of this uh, this this uh, subject today? The other example I want to give is a little bit more uh, quick for me to to share. Probably about ten years ago now, I'd gone. Uh, to, I was in up for an interview for a church leadership role, um, and the 
the church leader at the time, I was meeting a meeting and greeting a bunch of different people. Excuse me, I was wetting my whistle. And I remember meeting the former leader and his wife. They were probably 10, 15 years older than the current church leaders. And I remember just this wonderful testimony. We didn't talk about it. It didn't come up. I just discerned this from being around them. And this is the point that the wife of the husband, the former, you know, the senior guys linked to the the church in question, was a strong woman, strong, um, beautiful sense of godliness about her. And the way she talked about her husband um, was deferential in that she would she was obviously talking affectionately she obviously obviously loved him obviously respected him obviously deferred to him obviously looked up to him obviously cherished and honored and so on and so forth okay that was the testimony of listening to this this woman talk and yet she was strong and yet she was solid she wasn't like a little mouse she wasn't timid she wasn't um somehow controlled she wasn't fruitless you know she was she was a, a woman of stature, is what I'm trying to say. So that was the first couple. Now, the, but the, but the the, cu- the the current couple leading the church, the testimony of their marriage, and this is why I didn't take the job, is because they were arguing in public. And I, rem- I remember this so vividly. We were at a, a gathering um, of the church. It was something to do with like a out a, an open air thing, and this scene, the couple of the church. This is who I would have been under. Um, if I had taken the job, okay? And his wife, the wife was just that arguing with her husband in public in a way that was the complete opposite of the testimony of the older lady as regards to her husband. Um, I can't tell you how ugly that is. And equally, I can't tell you how beautiful the first example is. That's the way it's supposed to be. When you read my article, The Death and Death of Spiritual Leadership, to do with this you'll understand how ugly and not only ugly, dysfunctional and utterly chaotic it is when there isn't this um, divine order, when there isn't this um, uh, essentially submission in place, when there isn't God's order of things for not only the Christian family but for for the local church. This is incredibly serious and I've given time to it. I think I've gone over time again, but I've done my best to try and get through this passage today. And we come to these, I've, I've not even dealt with the final the final little verses here. Um, I've kind of tried to explain this. We're going to come to the Lord's Supper next week. Um, I want to just finish with this in verse 14. Look what he says, and this is after he'd given the examples of a woman with short hair or a man with long hair. Again, thinking of the cultural transience of this, but reflective of a a transcultural, a timeless truth in God. Genesis 2. Look what Paul says, and I think this is the answer, okay. After all is said and done, and I am grateful for Merkel's scholarly academic st- study on this. I'm grateful for that because it's, it's helped me to understand this thing of 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2. But look what Paul says in verse 14. Does not nature itself teach you? And he was talking there about the fact that, you know, for a guy to have long hair is unnatural. And there's nothing wrong with a guy today having long hair. We know that. There's nothing wrong with a woman having short hair. We know that. But at the time, culturally, he's he's making the point, does not nature itself teach you? Isn't it? It is Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, isn't it? Some of you may roll your eyes at me saying that, but the point here is profound. And I want I want to leave us all today with this thought okay does not nature teach you when you think of a man and a man together in sexual whatever or a woman and a woman you know doesn't nature teach you that there's something wrong with that when a man is ruled by his wife or when a, a man abdicates and so on to, does not nature teach you that there's something wrong with that When a woman leads a church and has spiritual authority over men, does not nature teach you that there's something ungodly and not right, disordered, chaotic about that? My point I'm making is that there is a sense in which a child of five can understand 
this, some of these things, and in terms of intuitively understanding understanding what nature is teaching us. God has put it into the fabric of nature. And I want to ask the question, if you disagree with this this morning, say you are an egalitarian or you are a Vicky Beeching arguing for homosexual blessing, etc., or whatever, or transgender ideology, or whatever. If you've got another view or another view or another conviction on that, my question is, what is it based on? Now, at least some egalitarians will have, and there are scholars who are, you know, who who would spar with the likes of Merkel and Merkel's article that I'll put into the show notes, you know, quotes that and is writing critically and so on. There is an element in which there is some respect you can give to that. You've at least thought about it you've delved you've spent hours weeks months years thinking about it praying about it even or whatever and you've come to a conclusion and you can show people what your conclusion is but this is my question right how much of the church today has done that how much of the church today that has got an alternative quote-unquote conviction quote-unquote progressive theology how much of the church today can do that can vicky beeching in her book whatever it's called can she really show a watching world how she comes to a different conclusion about Romans 1? Of course she can't, and she didn't. This is my point. It's all very well talking about having convictions. Oh, I, just, I just firmly believe that. But if you can't show me or others what your conviction is based on, it's like building a house on some wet sand. Progressives, to progress or not to progress? That is the question, not the difference only between 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2, although that question applies to that. It is also to the homosexual issue, to the trans trans, um, gender ideology issue, to all of the stuff linked to this to progress or not to progress is the question. There is profound uh, relevance of Hamlet's soliloquy to 2 Corinthians 5 and our place on this planet. And coming to the Lord's table next week in the second half, I know, I've, forgive me, because I know I've not gone through each of those verses and that I haven't had time. And if we were in person, we'd be able to do that probably. Or um, We'll come to the Lord's table next week in our homes, but also pray that the Lord does this somehow in a national corporate sense so that the body of Christ would be built up in love via the mercy and blessing of repentance and at the risk of over-repeating the, the death and dearth of spiritual leadership is the answer, I believe, to this question of to progress or not to progress. The The answer is when it comes to trans transient cultural issues yes of course when it comes to transcultural timeless issues to do with the sanctity of god's word and the holiness and glory of his name absolutely not and woe betide those of us who celebrate doing so lord we we just appreciate the gravity of your word for friendship of the lord with the lord is for those who fear him We want to fear you in the right way. We want to know the terror of you in a right way so as to be able to persuade men, Lord, not only about salvation, being in nobody else other than you, but also about the things that you say primarily about yourself and about your creation, about your world. And I pray that there would be a sense of persuasiveness about your word in the hearts of people, in the minds of people today, perhaps particularly those who have been offended or insulted. Lord, I pray that you would bear great fruit from your word, having gone forth, that it wouldn't return void, but that it would achieve the the, the purpose for which it was sent and that it would accomplish bringing great glory to your name. I pray for those who struggle particularly with this issue of submission, maybe who have experienced, um, like Abigail had experienced with Nabal, Nabal, whatever his name is, Lord, the, the, the kind of misappropriation, the abuse of submission, the chauvinistic, uh, abusive attitudes that are also evil. pray you'd bless anyone who struggles with male figures or authority figures or misunderstanding your word. Lord, I pray for, for purity and devotion to you that was able to come to you in um, submission and surrender and that you would heal where that's needed. 
Lord, we pray ultimately that your church would come into order. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Into the Prey, breaching the chaos of the church. We trust that it's been both provoking and challenging as well as inspiring and comforting in the midst of this very evil present age. If you'd like to get behind what we're doing, if you'd like to support us through prayer and through financial support, we'd be deeply grateful for both of those two ways of supporting. And you can do that and find out a little bit more information about that by going to firebrandnotes.com forward slash give. That's firebrandnotes.com forward slash give. We'd be deeply grateful. Check it out. And we look forward to connecting with you soon. Maranatha. Maranatha.